to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and I'm joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Dr. Lee Johnson. How you doing, Lee? I am hanging in there. <laughs> wow. Like, Starting off on a pessimistic note. Um, and, and, the, and the semester just began. And I'm also joined by Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you, Charles? Man, life's got me by the short hairs. I'm telling you. <laughs> well, maybe we'll hear about that in your rants. Speaking of which, Frangelica's wanted to know what we're all drinking. So, Charles, let's start with you. What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Oh, I think I'll have one scotch, one bourbon, and, and one beer. <laughs> With a vodka sidecar. It's because it's just that kind of bluesy. He's like, and if anybody's got any heroin on him, like. <laughs> right, you know, just tie me off. Tie me off. But yeah, I just, you know, we're going to go with that classic blues drink because it's been a rough few days, I think, mm. if you're paying attention to news and popular culture. Well, so do you want to rant or rave about that news? Well, let me go with my rave. And my rave is Shakespeare. Wow. That is my rave. About once a year, I go down a rabbit hole reading some of my favorite Shakespeare plays and also watching the cinematic depictions of it. And this year, I was like, well, let me compare Olivier's Hamlet to Branagh Hamlet. Let me compare mm. Olivier's Henry V to Branagh's Henry V. Or let me look at Kurosawa's Throne of Blood his adaptation of Macbeth to the most recent version of Macbeth with Marion Cotillard and Fassbender. I'm always amazed by the, the power of the characterizations. I'm always amazed by the ways in which what Shakespeare writes just echoes across so many different historical epochs and so many different cultures can embrace and understand and, and benefit from some of the core messages that Shakespeare has, I think about the the nature of human character. I think fundamentally what his plays really get to, and you know, these are the tragedies and these are the histories, they really get to what it means to be human in certain types of recurring circumstances. So my rave is Shakespeare, my rant to keep it within the vein of acting and production. My rant is that so many black creatives have met really early deaths this past year. Certainly uh, a few within hip-hop, Biz Marquee, most notably Black Rob, passed away. But if not a hip-hopper, but certainly attended to that generation of, of Black artists, or that age group, rather, mm -hmm. uh, the actor Michael K. Williams yeah. Yeah. was found dead in his apartment wow. in Brooklyn a day before we recorded this. And it seems there, were, there was drug paraphernalia. And I know through interviews, he had a history struggling with drug addiction. And it just broke so hard for so many reasons. First is that the COVID isolation is having such a terrible effect. Yeah. I know on our community members who have emotional or psychological challenges, the isolation can be overwhelming. And certainly those who have histories with or struggle with addiction, isolation yeah. is also wearing on them as well. I think that that could have, I can't, you know, I'm not going to speculate, but let's be aware that COVID is more than just the virus but it's, it's the social negation that so many people feel. So that's where it really breaks one heart. The other side is that Michael K. Williams is such an important actor in that many of his roles as a queer black man challenged so many of our ideas of what black masculinity can mm. be. I think we all yeah. know Gee. him 
most as Mr. Omar from The Wire. Yeah. The cheese stands alone. The cheese stands alone. That's right. Hey, yo, lesson here, babe. You come at the king, you best not miss. But in every character, he, he expanded and pushed the boundaries and challenged us to really rethink the elements of being a black man in America. So just a heartbreaking loss and my deepest sympathies and prayers for his family and friends. Yeah. Just piggybacking on what Charles just said, Omar Little is hands down easily in my top five television characters of all time. And yet uh, Michael K. Williams, amazing talent, heartbreaking loss. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, I, I just want to echo that. Well, Lee, what are you drinking? I today am just going to be having what is usually my usual Fireball and Diet Coke, though I've realized this season that I haven't actually uh, ordered my usual usually enough, but that is my usual fireball and die coat. My rave today is autumn. Today was the very first morning in Memphis that I woke up and the temperature was in the sixties and I love fall weather the most. I think that part of that has to do with being a lifelong academic. Like I think that my whole life has been structured by the academic calendar. So the way that regular humans think about New Year's, I think about <laughs> fall that way. Like it's the beginning of something, although it of course is not the beginning of things. It's the it's the beginning of the death of things. But it's the beginning of the pay period. It's the beginning <laughs> right. of your annual exactly pay period. Right. Yeah, exactly right. But I do actually truly love autumn. Sad note, I hate spring not spring the season but the first like smell of spring the first few days of spring with a white hot passion for the exact same reason like I get extreme anxiety when I get those notes of spring because I think that for my whole life because it's operated on the academic calendar I'm like oh shit's due I'm about to run out of money <laughs> like you know I mean I think that it's weird because you know I really hate spring and I really love fall which I think, you know, for most people is weird, but I do love fall and I'm really glad to see autumn slowly coming. My rant today is a widespread plague that I think is affecting America, which I have called PDDC, which stands for Pandemic Denial Disorder Condition, <laughs> which is what I think that we are all steeped in right now. As I've said before in previous episodes this season, I think that we were in a big hurry to get back to normal. We did have that very small window of time where it looked like that if you were vaccinated that you could go back to normal, even if other people couldn't. And of course, Delta came along and disrupted that. But it just feels like there's so many people that are acting as if the pandemic is not happening. This weekend, I was watching NCAA football, and I watched the Georgia-Clemson game. It's like two powerhouse top five SEC football teams. I honestly did not see a face mask in the crowd of 70,000 mm. people that were mm. there for that. And I don't know how it is that we've just decided that the pandemic is not happening anymore. So PDDC people don't get it. <laughs> okay, Rick, what are you drinking and what is your rant and rave this week? 
I'm, I'm going to take a page out of Lee's book. And, you know, the weather turned not chilly, but, you know, definitely toward fall yesterday and today. And so I think I'm going to have an Oktoberfest. Nice. Good call. I'm not a big fan of Sam Adams' Oktoberfest, but if Frangelica has another Oktoberfest back there, I'll I'll try it. Otherwise, give me <laughs> give me the Sams. I mean, Sam Adams, you can still call us because I'm a big fan <laughs> of the summer ale. My rave this week is the Afghani women who have come out onto the streets of Kabul to yeah. protest the Taliban. I think they need everyone's support, and I am just incredibly impressed by the courage that these women are showing. And so I want to rave about them. Here, here. My rant this week is, sorry, Charles, fucking Representative Jim Jordan. Again. No apologies here. No need to apologize to me, that rat bastard. So, so the douchebag goes on Twitter showing himself getting a vaccination and captions that by saying vaccine mandates are un-American. That dude has PDDC. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the dude is suffering some serious PDDC. But what I love, I mean, this is Twitter at its absolute finest because immediately people are like, hey, dude, you know George Washington mandated his troops get inoculated for smallpox? Hey, dude, you remember polio? No? That's because we all got vaccinated. Right? Also, Twitter is great by going beyond that and saying, you know what's un-American? Not reporting known abusers. Sex offenders. Known sex offenders when they're right in front of you. You know what also is un-American? Attempting to overthrow the government. So, Charles, I'm so sorry for you. If I could come there and help get that man out of office, let me know and I'll come and go door to door. Oh, we'll see who's running against him in the upcoming uh, midterms. And we, we just have to pour money into that campaign. Yeah. Whoever it is, I'm, you heard it here first. I'm pledging $100 to your campaign. Jeff Seitz is, <laughs> Jeff Seitz is his first announced challenger. Others may join. I don't know. But Jeff Seitz is on Twitter, at Jeff Seitz, and he's always critiquing and haranguing and, and bringing his policy ideas to bear on Jim Jordan. So, yeah. Jeff, call us. We've got a seat for yeah. you. That's right, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. And the drink's on us. All right. So, Charles, you're in the hot seat this week. Uh, what are we talking about? We are talking about whether there's any legitimacy in the jobs that we do. Oh, shit. Wait, hold on. That's not what I said. I, I thought we were doing a, a fun podcast. Okay. No, and I mean not in terms of philosophers, but in terms of what place, what role do the humanities have? If you've been in the academy within really the last, I guess, 25 years, very easily one can identify what I would call the corporatization of the academy, this sure. idea that institutions in many ways, have to be run as if they were corporations with an eye to the bottom line, with an eye on those various bodies of knowledge or, or departments that are most profitable. And because the society itself has been stripped to the bare bones with this really raw capitalist sensibility, where now parents who send their kids to school really just think, well, what can my kid do to get a job? What field of study will most easily and most profitably employ them? And so... 
We have colleges that are being managed as if they were vocational schools. And there's nothing wrong with vocational education. Not at all. But I want to talk about what is the foundation of the liberal arts project, which is the humanities. Have we lost a handle? Have we forgotten about, or do we no longer see the irrelevance or the importance of of a humanities-based education? And I want to talk about this because maybe I'm overthinking this, but I'm beginning to see the lack of a particular sensibility or the particular asserted goals or even the effects right, of familiarity with humanities. I think we're really beginning to see that within the public realm and how people think about themselves vis-a-vis their fellow citizens or vis-a-vis the government or vis-a-vis themselves. Charles, I find in the way you introduce this sort of two sides that may be in tension with one another, but I hold both of them, I think, with you. So the one side is that the university has become corporatized, that that has led to the main reason for getting an undergraduate degree is in order to get a job. And so then you start choosing majors depending on what's going to get you a job. And then universities start saying, well, wait a second. I know if someone studies accounting, then they're going to get a job as an accountant. If someone studies French literature, they're going to get a job as a author of French novels like so it it doesn't there's not really a real career they're gonna get a job as an accountant (laughs) (laughs) well I mean part of what I always say to uh, parents especially is unless you go into the clergy or the military everyone's gonna be in business everyone is going to be in business and businesses are telling us that business schools aren't the best training grounds for the people they want to hire We have this old-fashioned kind of, and I'm going to say this and it's going to sound negative, but I really actually affirm it and believe it. We have this old rhetoric that the liberal arts and the humanities within them make us a well-rounded human. They teach us about the larger truths of human life. They expose us to the fact that truth itself is not always empirically available, or maybe even like seeing things is not the best access to the truth. And they also, you know, John Dewey's old rhetoric was education in the humanities makes us better citizens. So that kind of high rhetoric is the one side. The other part of me then, going back to where I began with all of this is, I think the problem with the humanities is we didn't sell out enough. That is, <laughs> we we didn't cash in when everyone is saying, what are you going to do with that degree? What kind of job can you have? We should have amassed all the statistics that are out there that show that humanities majors are, you know, if you go 10 years out, they're paid more. They advance more in their various fields that they're going to be working in throughout their lives. They report that they're happier. So there's lots of measures where they're more successful. And we should have been cashing in on that. We should have been saying to parents, you know, if you want your student to get really rich in business, that student needs to study philosophy. Yeah, Rick, I 100% agree with you. I think that a lot of times the way that this 
debate gets framed is in terms of, and and by the way, this is not only on the side of the people so-called defending the humanities, but also on the side of the people arguing for the irrelevance of the humanities, Mm. but that this debate gets framed as a debate between, you know, we would say in philosophy, instrumental value and intrinsic value. And I think that one of the really important things to remind people is that there are many things that are instrumentally valuable that are not intrinsically valuable. But there are also many things that are intrinsically valuable that are also instrumentally valuable. And I think that maybe one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about the kind of defense of the humanities that you hear from people who work in the humanities, and especially academics who work in the humanities, is that they plant their flag on this argument of the humanities are intrinsically valuable, which I completely agree with. You know, the Dewey argument that this is a way to create better moral agents and better citizens. A hundred percent agree with that argument. But it's also the case, exactly as you're pointing out, that that kind of an education is also instrumentally valuable. And maybe the point to really make in the 21st century is that it is increasingly so instrumentally valuable to have that kind of intrinsically valuable education. Because what we're seeing, and I know we've talked about this before in this podcast, is that we're training students who are going to have not just three or four or five jobs in their lives, but three or four or five careers in their lives. And so this idea of being flexible, adaptable, broadly educated is, again, not only intrinsically valuable, but instrumentally valuable. There are so many students that I've taught in my last 15 years who currently have careers that did not exist when they were my students. But I would say... And I'm not playing devil's advocate. I'm just trying to think through this, you know, having had so many conversations with parents and being a college professor for 20 odd years. It seems to me that part of the challenge to this model of education is the fact that it's still very rarefied air, that to a very large degree that it is reflective of a particular way of being within society, right? It is a privilege in many ways. And to be honest, has really been constructed as such. I mean, look. We can go back to Aristophanes and the clouds and making fun of Socrates in terms of (laughs) the popular perception of those who take time to think about or meditate on these larger, much more abstract ideas and these questions about one's humanity and so forth and so on. But it's part of the challenge, the fact that what we deem to be intrinsically and instrumentally important education, as you laid out so well, Lee, is that it just over the course of time has been limited to a very small population of people within societies. Well, and let's, Charles, go back to your rave this week, right? So there have been gatekeepers allowing and denying access to someone like Shakespeare. The way I often put this, we should never deny the aspirational. So the fact that there have been gatekeepers doesn't mean, therefore, we need to stop teaching Shakespeare or we need to stop teaching French literature, but rather we need to allow those who aspire, who look up and say, I wish I had access to that. Our job, I think, is to give them more access to that, not less access to that. And we can talk about the Dewey. We can talk about going back to to the ancients. But, but do we really have a very real argument for the intrinsic benefit, 
right? We can talk about the instrumentum, but can we really talk about the intrinsic benefit of this type of education in a society and in a world that has become deeply technocratic? has become so deeply invested in uh, the entrepreneur, the billionaire, as a model of the highest level of human uh, achievement and freedom, right? What is your Shakespeare or what is your Pascal up against Mark Zuckerberg or up against our friend Bezos, who <laughs> seem to have such an amazing command on the tethers of reality itself? So why shouldn't students be encouraged? You want to be like them and you want to make money and you want to go into the STEMs or you want to become an engineer. And so what about your, your playwriting? So much about your attention to anthropology. I think I'm trying to think about what my ideas are and why I'm invested in this idea of the humanities and whether or not I'm just out of step with where society is now and what the general thoughts are that people have about these questions. I mean, I think that we do have an argument for the intrinsic value of the humanities. Even people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, and and actually specifically Mark Cuban, who has many times made arguments for the value of the humanities and has said, as a billionaire, these are the kinds of people that I want to hire. Even those people, I mean, of course, they have the means to have time to, for example, reflect upon their own existence and think about questions of meaning and value, which is what the humanities equips you to do. You know, so it equips you to have a certain kind of evaluative reflection on your own life and the life of being with others. I think that we can make that argument independent of the equally important argument that you also got to pay your bills and you've also got to eat. So I think that to me, the failure on the part of the humanities has not been that they haven't made the case for the intrinsic value of a humanities education. I think we've done that literally ad nauseum. And I think that our failure has been to show the instrumental value of that already intrinsically valuable set of skills and personal development and conceptual capacities, et cetera. Charles, I get your point because often in order to respond to these kinds of pushbacks against the humanities, what we would say is, yeah, we're out of step, right? We're, we're out of step with the way the world is moving, the way society is going, the values that are dominating our world and our societies. But the value, the intrinsic value is that we're critical of that, right? But there's a weird hubris in that, namely that we've already assumed that someone else's values are the ones that should be criticized and my values are not the ones that should be criticized. And and so I, I do feel like sometimes we're caught both flat-footed and this is where I think a certain kind of anti-elitist movement, especially in U.S. culture, emerges precisely because we keep saying, I don't know about your universities, but in almost every humanities department at DePaul, one of our learning outcomes that that department will have is we're teaching people critical thinking. We're teaching people how to be critical. And there is a problem there that if we're going to sell the humanities, our, our sales pitch, therefore, is, well, we're intrinsically valuable because y'all suck. And we're going to show you the ways in which you all suck. And, and so I do think we have a problem there. 
all the while, I still agree with Lee that our problem has never been giving the intrinsic value argument. Our problem is that we have a knee-jerk reaction uh, against anything that smacks of practicality and instrumentality we think, therefore, is tainted. Hey, listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab... We figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR, and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. I want to go to your idea, Rick, of anything that smacks of the practical we shy away from. And I also want to think about the idea of how the humanities education or liberal arts education have been seen or constructed, certainly within popular culture, as for the privilege. And I think about the recent television show, The Chair. Two thumbs down. <laughs> At this. Six thumbs down from all of us. Wait, I never gave any thumbs up or down. <laughs> yeah, I'm still. I've just, it over. I've just commandeered your thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is a fan of it, so I got to think very carefully about my position. <laughs> <laughs> but I think about the idea of the humanity as, as being very privileged in terms of what types of education historically have African American children been privy to. And the ways in which sort of the relegation, and this goes back, you know, Du Bois is getting a lot of work out of this this podcast yeah. this season, <laughs> yeah. right? And I think about going back to the- Big Du Bois, call us. <laughs> Big Du Bois. <laughs> I think about his famous debate with Booker T. Washington at the turn yeah. of the, the 20th century about- do African-American students, should they receive vocational training or should they receive liberal arts or humanities-based training? And Du Bois' argument was that this was the training that would create leaders. Mm. They would create a critically engaged, culturally aware, very small at that point in history, group of African-Americans who would use these skills, use these abilities, use this critical consciousness and the awareness to, for lack of a better term, lift the vast majority, the lower 90%. Of black people out of the post-slavery, post-reconstruction conditions. Washington argues that vocational training is far more practical. It allows for the African Americans in the South to create a particular economic and social niche for themselves, and then they can use these skills, because we're talking still a, a heavily agrarian society, though one that's moving toward agricultural modernization, yeah. they could use these skills as carpenters, as farmers, so forth and so on, in order to build the economic foundation of a black community 
that can then later on have the economic power to challenge Jim Crow and white supremacy. But even in the context of Du Bois's argument, he has this idea of the talented 10th. And even in the context of this model for black liberation and black integration into the United States, there is this idea that there are only a small group of black students or black people, men and women, who should have access to this particular type of education and who will be able to use it in a proper hierarchical position. So it just seems to me that that's part of the challenge that, yes, we have not been very successful at arguing the instrumentals or the benefits of a liberal arts or humanities-based education, but few of us have done a very good job of showing how these ideas, these texts, these ways of thinking about the world, these particular dispositions and positioning are universal in their benefit and accessibility. Yeah, I want to agree with you. I think that the real problem is that we've reversed the priority of instrumental and intrinsic value. So I think that, in my experience anyway, most humanities professors believe in the intrinsic value of the humanities, but also think that in order to achieve that intrinsic value of the humanities, it is important that you also, for example, have a good training in math or music and a good training in practical virtues, however you want to delineate that practice. I think that the opposite is not true. I think that we don't see built into STEM fields, largely, a, a discourse about intrinsic value. I mean, going all the way back to Plato, Plato says, what's the first thing that people need to learn? Mathematics, gymnastics, right? right. Like it's not just philosophy, right. but but it's prioritizing the intrinsic value of an education over the instrumental value of an education so that the intrinsic value can actually be achieved. I'd like to just for a second go back to something that Rick said last segment, which was that we should never deny the aspirational. And I think that this is going to get to a little bit of what Charles is also talking about here in terms of thinking about humanities education as elitist. I'm going to say this with some caution, but I think that there are times when there are good reasons to deny the aspirational, given how the aspirational is framed. If the aspirational is framed only in terms of instrumental value, with no concept of intrinsic value, with no concept of a telos, of a final end or goal or purpose, that there are many good reasons to deny framing one's world and one's endeavors in terms of those aspirations. Obviously, don't deny the aspiration, right? I mean, obviously... If people want to be rich, let them want to be rich. But if they're in my philosophy class, I'm going to say, let me tell you about the intrinsic values of philosophy. Also, by the way, it can make you rich, if that's also something that you want. So we are not examples of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look elsewhere for the examples of the rich philosopher. Yeah. So I take your point. And what I like about your correction of, of my point is, and I would take it even one step further, is that if someone wants to be rich, what I mean in not denying the aspiration is to find out actually, because being rich itself is instrumental, right? And and so to yeah. keep pushing- But for the sake of what? Right, keep yeah, pushing like, this question. The for the sake of For the which. sake of yeah. that, for, for wh why? For why? For why? And that's where I think we might then find an aspiration behind that aspiration that is something that we should also affirm. 
There's also something I read. No, see, this is something in the humanities. We say read when we mean see or hear. So I was going to say, I read you both as saying, but... I love the air quotes. I love the air quotes for a podcast. <laughs> those, are ju- those are just meant for you all. It's, they're not meant for the, for the listener. Can um, we have a sound effect? Can we come up with a sound effect for air quotes? Okay, side note. Ding, 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 are they called air quotes? I always thought that they were called scare quotes. Both. I think you either, yeah, both. I've heard both. Okay. Yeah. Underneath parts of what both of you were saying, I go to an argument I see. It has its beginnings in Aristotle, and then I think in a certain other direction, it gets played out in Marx. Namely, that these kinds of endeavors, the study and writing of literature, the study and writing of philosophy the study and writing of value, of history, and so on, languages, all of these take leisure time. In other words, if I am completely occupied by my concerns to satisfy my basic material needs, then I simply don't have the time to do that. And there is an exclusivity, therefore, already built into that, because not everyone has the leisure time. But on the other hand, I often find that many people see the intrinsic value of leisure time itself. And so I think about some of my relatives who they work to send their children to college precisely because they don't want them to have the trade they had, that they see that the parents see that as their children living a better life. Than, and, and so there is this kind of inherent value, I think, that is connected with this leisure time that I think we have to admit the humanities, because, you know, except for books and children, we don't make anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but just to go back to our earlier point, which I think we're all pretty much agreed upon, which is that the disciplines that are broadly considered to fall under the umbrella of the humanities are also preparing people for more, I mean, I don't know how to say it, profitable lives, lucrative lives, sure. lives with the opportunity yes. for more, not not only lives with the opportunity for more leisure time in terms of just like unpaid time, uh, but also opportunities for jobs with more time where work is not alienated labor. Right. Right. So this is going to be my kind of thread through this entire episode is that the problem with the defense of the humanities is not that it hasn't made the case for the intrinsic value of the humanities, but it has got its nose too up in the air to make the case for the instrumental value of the humanities. The challenge is that what we're describing, what we're talking about in terms of intrinsic value, but also in terms of the ability to demonstrate and argue instrumental value, may be at complete and total loggerheads with the larger perception and understanding of what it means to labor, to build meaning, and to have value in one's life within a capitalist society. Yeah, I think, Lee, that I agree wholeheartedly, and and there's a way in which I think think these join back together because one of the things that those endeavors that are born out of leisure deliver is a kind of liberation from concrete specificity. What I mean by that is that if I am trained to be a welder, 
I can weld things. And, and by the way, I used to weld things and I sucked at it. And so there are good welders and there are bad welders. But <laughs> it's very difficult to liberate welding and the knowledge involved in welding from that concrete specificity and plop that down somewhere else. And yet the study of philosophy or literature or history, I think, does allow this kind of, dare I say it, abstraction that in fact makes those of us who study in these fields open to not only changing jobs, but finding a job that wasn't there last year or using what we've learned over here and plopping it down in what seems to be a radically different context. And so people often rail as well against abstraction, but that's in fact what's paying off right now for people on the job market. I have a side anecdote, which I promise will come back to this point that Rick is making. But my partner is an artist. She's a metal worker. And about a year after we got together, I told her, I want to learn how to weld. And I'm just going to be 100% honest. Uh, I do not want to learn how to weld. I just wanted to put on the helmet and get the sparks and take an Instagram photo. Like, honestly, that's all I wanted. I wanted a photo. I wanted a photo of me with the gloves and the helmet and the thing. And I wanted a photo of me welding. And so for about three months or so after I said that, she was like, hey, do you want to go to the shop with me? I'll teach you how to weld. And I was like, uh, well, you know, whatever. And finally, she was like, you don't actually want to learn how to weld. You just want an Instagram photo <laughs> of you welding. And I was like, yeah. And she said, look, it's fine if you don't want to learn how to weld. Welding actually is a really useful skill. You should want to learn it. You know, we're together. You're never going to have to weld. I'm going to do the welding. But, you know, like it's something that you should learn. But how would you feel if I said, I want you to give me a kind of sound bite to say at a cocktail party about Kant? Right. It's just about not appreciating what this skill actually is. And she is 100% right. And by the way, I still don't have a Instagram photo of me welding. And I will also <laughs> say this, that the book that will never be written the wit and witticisms of Kant. That's right. never going to be written. <laughs> right. That's right. never going to be written. <laughs> but I do think that it is about appreciating. I, I think that what became very clear to me in that conversation was that there are intrinsic values to, for example, artistic skills. Or in this case, you could also call it a trade skill that are independent of the instrumental values of those same skills. And I had really no appreciation of the intrinsic value of that knowledge. I only saw it as instrumental. And I'm not attributing this view to my partner, but I think that she could just as easily say, all of your knowledge of Kant is entirely instrumental value. It's how we pay for our groceries, right? right? <laughs> is that like, you, you know this, right? right that's true. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. 
We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So I guess my question is, if we had to pinpoint what is the intrinsic value of the humanities, or in particular of philosophy, I think most people, definitely most people in the philosophy would say critical thought. I think it it might be that most people in the humanities say critical thought. So I want to just, if I could, just really quickly read you this quote by Foucault. And it's the last sentence that I really want to hear your thoughts on. So this is a quote. A critique is not a matter of saying that things are not right as they are. It's a matter of pointing out on what kinds of assumptions, what kinds of familiar, unchallenged, unconsidered modes of thoughts, the practice that we accept rest. Criticism is a matter of flushing out that thought and trying to change it, to show that things are not as self-evident as we believed, to see that what is accepted as self-evident will no longer be accepted as such. Practicing criticism is a matter of making facile gestures difficult. So I agree wholeheartedly with that and with Foucault's general outlook that, to put it in a different way, there are things that go without saying and we need to find a way to say them. And and so what I was going to say before that in response to what you were saying, Lee, is that I think the intrinsic value of the humanities is not just critical thinking or even critique in that sense, or maybe this is related, but as I mentioned earlier, the recognition that the sensible is not the only access to what is true. And I think often then we have to challenge what passes as self-evident in order to figure out what these other ways of access to what is true could be. I brought up the question of the elitist perception of the humanities because of the structures that contain this particular type of education. I've never thought that the values or the texts that are within what we now call the humanities have ever been something inaccessible on the part of the majority of people across the planet. I'm going back to my earlier rave, which was Shakespeare. Mm. Shakespeare has been constructed as this very elite body of knowledge of writings that get taught in college classes or presented in productions on Broadway. And we forget that, of course, Shakespeare wrote for the masses of people. And that it was through the academicization of Shakespeare that he now has become, or his writings have now become, this elite thing. But I think the way by which we can begin to articulate, and not just, once again, Lee's point about the instrumental benefit, but I think there's another layer of intrinsic benefit that we could argue if we as critics, if we as scholars, as teachers, 
can begin to say, look, the fundamental ideas that everybody has about life and ethical bearings and relationships and community and mortality, all of these questions which the welder at the plant has or the bartender on the midnight shift has or the cabbie driving through some empty streets at night, everyone is having these questions. But what we can do is say to you that ways to explore and help you to understand and get a grasp on these questions, that's there for everybody. There's another layer of intrinsic benefit that we just really haven't taken time to articulate and through our powers as teachers, the things that we're instrumental at doing. We just have not accomplished that. If I could just go back to this point that Charles has been making, I think really persuasively and consistently throughout this episode, which is about the elitism of the humanities. I just want to say that I do think that this maybe brings us back to what I think is the intrinsic value of the humanities, which is developing the capacity for critical thought. Because I think when we look at how all the disciplines across academia have tried to mitigate the elitism of higher education, so diversify, what we see is that in the STEM fields, That has happened by targeting specific underrepresented demographics and creating programs to include those underrepresented demographics in, for example, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. But why did they do that? They did that because already there was a whole critical discourse about the structures of oppression and opportunity and lack of opportunity that can only be addressed through the kinds of measures that we see STEM fields taking right now. So even the reversal of the elitism of STEM fields only happened because of the kind of critical thought that was being done in the humanities. When we talk about the humanities being elitist, to me, it's laughable, right? It's like the only reason that anything is not elitist now is because of work being done in the humanities. So the one who can make the argument about the elitism of the humanities is the one with a humanities education. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Adorno says in Negative Dialectics, the critique of privilege is itself a privilege. The world is as dialectical as that. Well, I think that's 100% right. I mean, we can see this in academia, right? Like, who were the people who really started the diversification of academia? Black men and white women. Right. Period. Right. Right. So, yeah, you know, the critique of privilege can itself only come from a position of privilege. But obviously, that critique then does its own work, which is open up more and more spaces of privilege for people to come in and critique. Right. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But I would like to add something slightly more expansive that goes back to the Foucault passage you, you quoted earlier. Namely, just to give a concrete example that I'm sure all of us have had in our classrooms, We might want to say just, for example, look, some of what we're going to read and discuss here is going to challenge beliefs that you're holding on the basis of tradition and culture, religious beliefs and and other kinds of beliefs. And at least my point is, I don't want to take those beliefs away from you, but I want you to know why it is you believe them. And that maybe tradition and history and privilege are not the best reasons for holding those beliefs, but there may be other ones. And and so humanities are going to help you then 
do the critique in Foucault's sense of now bringing to reflection things that went without saying. Yeah, because there may not be good reasons to believe them. Yeah, I mean, I, I happen to think there are not good reasons to believe in God, but... So if you had to make a pitch for your enrollment admissions department to hard pitch for more humanities freshmen, what would you say? You know, considering that I am a professor at Oberlin College, which has a very specific history vis-a-vis educating women and educating African-Americans in the early 19th century, and that prides itself on its commitment to its students having a positive effect within a society, I would argue instrumentally that what the humanities does, it creates an amazing toolkit of various skills that students can take with them into the world, critical thought, oral communication, written skills, the ability to do research, the ability to organize knowledge. These are things that can be taken from job to job to job, career to career to career. So that's what this does. And secondly, it offers exposure to a wide range of knowledge that would allow for a student to move across various careers, whether it be exposure to history or to literature or to I know this is social science, but broadly speaking, liberal arts, sociology or philosophy. So, right. So you have a nice bank of of information that one can take with you across one's professional life. The argument for an intrinsic value is this, that if you accept and embrace that every human being, no matter their race, class, ethnic, geographical background, has internal considerations, have thoughts about their lives and various challenges or circumstances they find themselves to, that a humanities education will give them a way to think about, to analyze, and to articulate those internal monologues. So does it make you a better person? Not necessarily, right? We have Alcibiades as a classical example of a liberally trained person who is absolutely horrible, but does it make you a person that is much more in tune with what may be the limits of oneself? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I'm and and Lee, I suspect you probably would move in this direction as well. I would move away from where Charles was also indicating maybe we back off from this, the idea that it makes you a better person because I think humanities disciplines are the disciplines in which we always wonder better in what sense? What do you mean by better? And so that very question is at issue for us. I, I think my argument goes in two tracks. The one track, and, and here again, I'm cribbing Adorno. Sorry, but I'm teaching a, a seminar on Adorno this term. And so I, I got Adorno on my mind. So sorry, podcast listeners, we're getting lecture notes. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Big Adorno, call us. <laughs> oh, I have a coffee mug with Adorno's face on it. And on the other side, or maybe right under it, it it's a quote from Adorno's aesthetic theory that is, art is the lie freed from magic in order to be true. That's awesome. That's also a perfect example of Vossi Major that found instrumental value for their degree. <laughs> <laughs> That dude was like, that dude was like, I'm going to make some mugs. For sure. For sure. But I mean, that actually gets to my Adorno's point in a sort of roundabout way. I think one thing I learned from Adorno is that, and Foucault also, I think, moves in this direction, is that oftentimes we look around at the world around us, our society, our culture, 
political structures, juridical structures, and also we look internally at, at, at ourselves and we wonder, shit, does it have to be like this? Does it have to be this way? But the ability to contemplate an otherwise is something that, to the extent a discipline is empirically driven, you will never come upon the ability to contemplate an otherwise. So that's one direction I would move in. And the other one, I would sell out the entire discipline. Hey, let's get a list of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. Holy cow, look how many of them are philosophy majors. Hey, let's um, see who's making the most money. Oh, wow, it's a lot of engineers and all this finance. Oh, but now five years later, now who's ahead? So I think that my first thing is this, maybe this is my version of what you all were calling earlier, or at least Lee, critical thinking is this ability to contemplate the otherwise. And then the second thing is to sell it out. Okay, so my answer to this is going to come as no surprise to either of you that is entirely about the advancements in AI. So (laughs) the McKinsey Global Institute predicted that basically a quarter of the workforce in America, so that's like 45 million Americans, are going to lose their jobs to automation in 2030. Now, I accept that higher education right now, all higher education institutions are basically vo-tech schools, vocational technical schools. I think that what we need to do is resituate the humanities in the vocational part. And we need to ask, so this is not my philosophical BFF, but Mark Cuban (laughs) said in an interview that he gave, honestly, a liberal arts degree is going to be more valuable in less than 10 years than any STEM degree. He basically said, like, look, we have got to be realistic about the workforce over the next 10 years. A quarter of it is going to be automated. Which jobs are not going to be automated? What are you still going to have to offer? Right. 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 And it's not going to be technical skills. It's not going to be the tech side of higher education. It's going to be the vocational side. It's going to be like, what can you bring to a workforce that can't be automated? And so far, I mean, who knows? We might be within 10 years of this. But so far is not critical thought is not moral thought or ethical thought, but is also not the kind of broad-viewed flexibility of a well-rounded intellectual, a yeah. well-rounded human intellectual, yeah. right? So so I think that is what we should be hanging all of our hats on, is that that anybody who's entering college right now that thinks that picking a major is like picking a major in 2000 or 1980 or 1960 has a gross misunderstanding both of higher education and of the workforce that they're about to enter. So I think that's what we need to do. We need to say, look, pick a major that can't be replaced by a computer. And I mean, maybe, maybe there are none, yeah. right? But And, and Lee, I, I mean, I think this becomes more and more relevant now that we have code writing code and it's getting quite good. And so then, you know, anyone who's going to study computer programming, that shit's also going to be automated. But I wonder if that's a capitulation to what for me was one of the primary concerns at the beginning of our conversation, which was 
Now, how do we avoid telling people go to this school because ipso facto, you're going to get that job? I don't think that that has to be the whole of the argument. This is where I'm trying to say that I think that we've always been experts at making the intrinsic value argument of a humanities degree. I think that the problem that we've run against is that there are all of these other fields that are making instrumental arguments. So like in a room of people that are saying to you, I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to make you rich. When there's one person who's like, I'm going to make you a better person. Right. Right. You're not going to them. So I think that the the trick here is to keep saying, I'm going to make you a better citizen and a moral agent, a better human being. But also all of these people that are saying they're going to make you rich, like 75% of them are lying. Right. And only someone who has studied logic could tell you which. (laughs) Exactly. 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 Big logic. Call us. I wish there was a big logic. Oh, are you oh my kidding? God. If there was a big logic, we would not have the rampant PDDC problem that we have. Oh, right for now. sure. I know this will come as a surprise to all of you regular listeners of Hotel Bar Sessions, but sometimes the HBS hosts don't actually say everything they meant to say during our episodes. Or, as happens more often, they realize after the episode is recorded that there's something they should have said that they didn't. For that reason, we have a whole section on our YouTube channel and our website dedicated to a video series we call Afterthoughts. Once every three episodes, Charles, Rick, and I record a video, so yes, you can see our actual faces, in which we more or less try to reviewer number two ourselves. You can check the Hotel Bar Sessions Afterthoughts on our YouTube channel. Just search for Hotel Bar Sessions on YouTube to find it, and be sure to subscribe when you do. Or you can also find a feed to our Afterthoughts under the Listen tab on our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com. Now, back to the conversation. If we think about the civic unraveling that we see now, I mean, one could argue that a lot of that is based on because people have not been introduced or trained to have certain broad bodies of knowledge or to certain critical skills where they can discern a lie from a truth or any of these things that we, from our perspective, we probably think, come on, man, we can do better than this, right? Think a little bit. Horse dewormer. (laughs) Charles is just saying directly what I've been suggesting all along, which is that if we give up on prioritizing these kinds of intrinsic educational values, like, for example, critical thought, we may not even be here in 20 years to talk about it because we're all going to die of a coronavirus or some virus because people can't figure out that it just makes more sense to wear masks, to get vaccinated, to stay six feet away from other people. Yeah, I mean, Charles, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I could people, not agree with you more. You know, are, are not recognizing logical fallacies in the yeah, arguments yeah. of someone like yeah. uh, Jim Jordan. Or maybe they don't want to, and that may be a different sort of conversation. All I'm saying is the Mike Judge movie, Idiocracy, is becoming less and less funny each yeah. passing year. Ugh, so true. Ooh, I guess that was kind of an elitist statement for me to make. 
I just think it's cute that you both think that it matters to say that something is a lie. <laughs> did you say it's cute? I did. <laughs> oh, you're, you're naivete. <laughs> oh, isn't that sweet? Your, your belief in I, truth. <laughs> can I just ask Big Humanities just to call me personally right. so, that I can, so that I can get Rick evicted from the... From the <laughs> From the congregation. <laughs> I'm sorry they didn't come up. Maybe it'll come up in the, the woulda, coulda, shoulda episode. But, you know, this argument for the inherent truth or the betterment that's available through humanity's training, that's what religion is doing. Right. People aren't reading Plato because they're reading, like, the Gospels. Or they think it's doing the same thing. Right. I'd, I'd just say this to my uh, – any philosophy class that I teach, I say at the beginning – I hope that we all can agree that we ought not make our most essential core moral judgments about ourselves, about other people, about our behaviors, about the world on the basis of intuition or authority, right? right? And I think that this is one of the ways where really the humanities has failed. It has failed to show the instrumental value of what is already intrinsically valuable. Amen, sister. Yeah, yeah. So, Charles, you're the one who started us off this discussion about preserving the humanities, saving the humanities. I'm interested in two things. One is, you started out that discussion with kind of a little bit of throwing humanities under the bus. And and I think by the end, you came around. But have we done a good job saving the humanities? Or did we leave something out? I think we. it's a good start. I, I think the question of whether or not those in humanities have been successful or have been effective in arguing our point is more so, as Lee has opened up, the question of have we given people an insight into a broader range and, and a broader effect that humanities education can have on people. And I, I think you're very right. I think that the flexibility that's going to be necessary to survive what is going to become a very turbulent job market demand that students have, and not just students, but everyone who can have access to an education, should have a, a, a facility across disciplinary boundaries, as well in terms of various types of skills that they could take with them. I, th I think that's true, but I, I think I'm still fundamentally a very naive person when it comes to these questions. And I, I guess in a certain way, my recognition of my naivete is a certain type of cynicism. My investment in this question is because I, I do believe that there, you know, it's, it's the, the intrinsic argument hmm. that there is something that can be gained from certain types of analyses or examinations or investigations or, or introspection through various forms of, of writings and conversations, debates hmm. and arguments that can be beneficial to who we are as a species, right? Our capacity to expand our intellectual or our emotional or our psychological range and reach. You know, my fundamental naivete is that I do believe in the possibilities of a transcendent human consciousness, hmm. that we can evolve further. There's much more that we can do, that we can expand ourselves, that we can expand through figuring out ways by which communications and conversations and considerations can be had across various groups in space and time. Hmm. Much more so than I think religion has ever done. 
right? I've never seen people go to war and say, hey, I read Montaigne. I read Pascal. <laughs> Let's have at it. And I think that this type of knowledge, I think this type of education will be necessary to our survival. I don't think that the technocratic, I don't think that the consumerist, I don't think that seeing ourselves just as workers whose only role and the only meaning in life is to find some place in the economic order and to make money. Right, that's a part of it. That because we, you know, we are, you know, as as Marx implies, we are fundamentally worker beings. But the other side of it is that what are the other things that our species being contain? What are the other ways that we come together? What are the other ways that we serve and labor in support of each other? And I think the humanities is a, is a piece of that. So you know, I'm childish. It's immature. <laughs> it's naive. It's hopeful to think these things. It's hopeful, and I still think it's important. I do not think it's childish or naive at all. I also think it's important, but at the risk of being the technocratic, instrumental James Carville of the, <laughs> of the <laughs> campaign to defend the humanities, I really do think that we need to invest our efforts more in demonstrating the instrumental value of the humanities. I think that, among other things, one of the things that we need to say in every philosophy class, we need to point out, for example, what is the conceptual difference between something that's instrumentally valuable and something that's intrinsically valuable. And as we all know, the best example of an instrumental value, something that's only good for the sake of something else, is money. Mm. So if you've got students who are saying the telos of my life is making money, then you you should be asking for the sake of what? Mm. Because money is not something that's good for the sake of itself. Well, Frangelica just gave me the closing time signal. It's last call, sadly. Big Frangelica <laughs> Frangelica just put down her copy of Thus Spoke Zarathustra to say it's last call. He's like, I can't keep coming into work with these assholes and not, and not at least trying to have something to say. So, uh, Lee, you're in the hot spot next week. What are we talking about? Our last episode, episode 30 of season two of Hotel Bar Podcast, finally is going to be on robotics, which I'm super excited about. We are, of course, in the literal midst of a robot invasion. <laughs> so devices of many different configurations and capabilities are taking up more and more of our lives. So not only machine learning, decision-making systems and social robots, but self-driving vehicles and recommendation algorithms, etc. And I want to talk about robotics. I know we've all seen the Boston Dynamic robots, which are awesome and scary, depending on your general disposition towards robots. You know, the word robot, the original use was in the play from the 1920s by Czech writer Chopik. And in Czech, a robot literally means forced labor or slave. It was termed by Chopek in his 1920 play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots. 
We are a long way from thinking about robots that way. However, I have many, many, many times said to people who talk to me about advanced AI and emerging technologies and advanced robotics, I have many times said that I am far more worried about inadvertently enslaving conscious beings than I am about the robot overlords Mm. overtaking Mm. us. (laughs) As you may or may not know, in the last 10 years or so, there has been a real and really vigorous philosophical debate about robot rights. Like, we need to get out ahead of this. We need to not do robot rights like we did rights for blacks, rights for women, rights for queers, but we need to get out ahead of this and be ready for if we have these beings that are sharing the world with us in the ways that we recognize as rights deserving, that we need to get out ahead and have laws in place for that. So I'm hoping that also next time we can talk about this great new book by David Gunkel that's called Robot Rights, which I'm teaching in my classes this semester. But in general, we're going to be talking about robotics next week, and I am super excited about it. That sounds really exciting. And we're ending our our season on the most Lee Johnson episode ever. Ever. Um, so this <laughs> most Lee of the Lee Johnson episodes. <laughs> the, hey, I've really not forced you guys to talk about AI every episode no, this season. No, no. So like I do get the I do get the last one. <laughs> but you've hinted at it quite heavily. <laughs> I am really looking forward to that um conversation. It should be a lot of fun if our robot overlords don't kill us by then. So big robots call us. <laughs> <laughs> Give us our approved scripts to read from. Yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been a great talking with you, and I will see you all uh, next week. So great, all you right. guys. Bye-bye. Talk to you later. <laughs>